Wyoming State College Alliance Church. It is a joy to be with you. I don't think there's any other church in our district. We have about almost 90 churches. I don't think there's any other church that's invited me back to preach three times. So, I, yeah, thank you. And especially to preach into a series. It's probably one of my more favorite things to do. I've been a pastor for many, many years. But in this role over the last four years, I don't preach like through a passage. So the sermon you'll hear today, sermon I never preached before, text I've never preached out of, and it's a joy to actually do some study and, and to come to you with um, a word that fits into this series. Today's topic is when worlds collide. I'm sure you know a little bit about that, right? In my role... That's almost like my job description, is to step in when worlds collide. Most pastors and church leaders, I'm the 911 call when something problematic is happening. Like, who would want this job, right? I currently have 17 cases of pastoral crisis. And just so that you know what a, like what a crisis looks like, Got a call on Thursday from one of our pastors saying, Nate, I know you're not my counselor and I'm not asking you to fix my problem, but I think you need to know I'm pretty sure my wife's going to leave me. I have 11 cases of church crisis. Crisis in a church is like when a nuclear bomb's going to happen and the church is going to fall apart. I know a little bit about when worlds collide, but so do you. I mean, some of you... Stepping into a new school year, you may feel like, oh my goodness, I'm stepping into war, like I'm stepping into the battleground, and there's going to be some collision of material that I'm receiving, and that I, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be challenging to me, and I'm going to have to have something to be able to, with strength, meet that strength in the collision of worldviews. I pray for you that God will protect you and help you. Sometimes there's something that's going on in your family right? It's like a, a crisis of some nature, and uh, husband, wife, dad, kids, mom, like, <laughs> worlds colliding, right? Y'all, y'all know what this is about, right? So this is a text for all of us, but here's a problem. There's a couple issues with this text in, in Acts chapter 5 that makes it kind of hard to get just in the nutshell of what we just read because the truth is the story starts in chapter 3 and really you could say it kind of starts in chapter 2 but it's really chapter 3 all the way until the beginning of chapter 8 is the story and so we've had this little snapshot and it's it's just kind of hard to understand everything that's going on the other thing is that we often don't understand that at this period of time Christians did not perceive themselves as something other than Jewish. I mean, racially, ethnically, they were Jewish, but also religiously, they were Jewish. They were devout Jews. So what they're doing in living out their new faith, it's not even called Christianity at that point. It's just knowing Jesus is Messiah and that he's raised from the dead. The central point for their worship experience is where? It's the temple. But the problem is none of these people in this Christian sect, none of them are leaders. They're uneducated. They're like the rabble. I mean, they're like nobodies. 
And yet there is a very strict hierarchy of who's in charge on those temple grounds and in Judaism, and they are powerful, powerful people. They hold the economy. They hold life and death. They are power brokers in that culture. But these new apostles, they're nobodies. So this is the context. So it really starts in chapter 3 where Peter and John are going to the temple because that's where they they do it. They do their worship there. That's where they meet. And and they actually gather as Jesus followers in a little place called the Solomon's Portico, like this little porch area. And that's where they would gather and they would, what was called the apostles' teaching. So these rabble-rousers, these like fishermen, these nobodies would get these Jesus followers together. And the problem is now there's thousands of them. So Peter and John are on the the way to this temple and they see this lame guy and there's this miracle that's performed and he's jumping around like totally out of control and Peter takes advantage of of the moment and chapter 3 is his sermon. Chapter 4, he gets arrested by the Sanhedrin, by the political leaders. Like, wait, what is going on here? You're not... And here, this big theme is don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. Like, you're welcome to be Jews with us, but this Jesus stuff, you've got to stop it. And you've got to find that 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 thread through all of the story, all the way into chapter 8, is this this tension over will they obey and not teach in Jesus' name, or will they defy and teach in Jesus' name? So they bring Peter and John in, they arrest them, all that. They eventually release them. The end of chapter chapter 4, then, is a prayer meeting, and this stunning thing happens that they're praying for boldness, and while they're praying, literally the room starts to shake. Now, you may say, yeah, right. All right, this is going to sound a little weird to you. It's happened to me before. I was in a gathering of people before Jesus in a second story in Ecuador when I was a missionary, and all of a sudden, the room was shaking, and it was a metal metal building, so it was like... You could hear it. When it was in Ecuador, terremotos, like um, earthquakes, they're pretty common. So that's what we thought it was when we stepped down and talked to everybody else. Nobody else on the campgrounds felt it, only us that were in that room together. That's not like a little bit life-altering, right? And they, that happens at the end of chapter 4. And, and, and it says what happens next is they went out and they, they boldly proclaimed the word of Jesus. You, you, you see the world's colliding. Will they or will they not defy, obey? They're saying, we're sticking with Jesus. Coming to chapter 5, crazy things happen. It's not in the text. I don't know if you guys are touching on this in the sermon series, but Ananias and Sapphira die because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Next thing that happens in, in the text is, um, is it says that they continue to meet together in the temple uh, courts and in, and in house to house, and they're, they're proclaiming the word of Jesus. And we come into this story, our story here, and, uh, and the, the, the Sanhedrin arrest all of the apostles. They bring all 12 of them, right? They all bring them in, and they say, you must not proclaim like the word of Jesus, and they, they put them in jail. <clears throat> and then this angel shows up and releases them from prison and says, go back and do what you were doing before. Like, go back and proclaim and so they do and the next day they're in the temple courts again doing their thing and the Sanhedrin gathers for their trial 
And like, where are the prisoners? Bring the prisoners. There are no prisoners. Like, they're not in jail anymore. Where they go? And somebody says, well, I think they're in the temple courts. I think they're like doing what they're not supposed to do. And so they bring them in, but now they're afraid now of the crowds. There's so many people that if they're violent in bringing in the apostles, that there could be a, a, like a riot. So they bring them in and they say, what are you doing? And you heard the story, right? Peter says, like, we can't stop doing this. Like, this is, this is who we are. This is what we do. And they say, you must stop. He says, well, you know, you're going to have to decide if it's better for us to obey God or you, but we're not going to, like, obey you. We're going to do what God tells us to do. And uh, so then, you know, the Gamaliel thing, and they, they eventually say, okay, we're not going to do anything to you, but please, like, stop. And then the, the, the whole text ends with them saying, yeah, we're just going to keep on doing it. Just so that you know where this goes, in chapter 6 is the, the choosing of the deacons. Stephen's one of them. Stephen's a powerful man. Stephen uh, gets stoned and uh, because he proclaims the word of God in the temple courts. Stephen gets stoned. And in chapter 8, now the church is scattered. They can't, they can't meet in the temple courts anymore. They're scattered. That's the story. Now, how do you understand that? And what's the lesson for us in it? I don't think that you can understand this whole story from 3 till 8 unless you follow one theme that is woven throughout. It actually starts in chapter 2, but it comes really clear in chapter 3, verse 10, as you see it. And it says, And they, this is the believers, were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The, the, the word there is, uh, amazement, is blended Fear and wonder. You'll find that that theme of amazement, wonder, awe, is sprinkled through all of this story. And I would just ask here at the beginning, when's the last time you experienced that in relationship with Jesus? That you felt awe-struck. You know, it was a common experience when Jesus walked on earth, as you read the Gospels, it was really common that he would do these miraculous things and people would go, whoa, what is this? We've never experienced anything like this before. And they were, they were feeling both fearful and they were feeling amazed at the same time. So now in the book of Acts, actually that same theme from the Gospels continues on. And Jesus is still walking. He's still doing his stuff on earth, but now he's doing it through his people. And the impact is the same. There's this great sense of awe. So when you come into chapter 5, if you want to study this, this text that we're looking at, you've got to look at the greater context. And that, that, that concept of awe or wonder is all in chapter 5. So for example, chapter 5, verse 5. And great fear came over all who heard of it. Chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church. Chapter 5, verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And in the middle of all this, we get uh, the story that we're looking at, verse 20 and 21. The, 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 the apostles are in jail, and it says, An angel of the Lord released them and commanded them, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of, the, of this life. Guess what they did? Like, why would they do what they did? And, and the answer is, well, what would you do if an angel showed up to you, released you from prison, and gave you a direct command, like, do this? What would you do? Well, what they did the first thing in the morning is they were back in the temple courts. They were proclaiming 
they were proclaiming again the gospel. And this theme of awe continues all the way into chapter 9, verse 31. And uh, I want to read this to you. It says, So the church throughout all Judea, Gal Galilee, and Samaria. By the way, from 8-1 until 9-31, that's how far the church is spread. Before it was a temple movement in Jerusalem, now it's through all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And the church enjoyed peace. Look at this. Being built up and going on. How? In the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Here's what I want you to see. What's happening in this story, when worlds collide, is a gospel story. And here's what I mean by that. It is not principally a story of what's the moral right thing to do when you're in conflict. It's not like, here's three practical things to try to do when your worlds collide. It's not like, there's a kind of a right way to handle this and a wrong way to handle this. And if you do these three things, you'll do it. It's not a moral teaching on what's the right thing to do. It, it, it's a gospel story. And the gospel always starts with who is God and what he has done. And, and, and the big thing here is that the people say, who is God? God is Jesus, and he is among us, and we are awestruck by that. Through all these stories, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, this theme that you get is Jesus is here. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the resurrected Lord, and he's doing amazing things, and their response almost seems automatic. Like they've been caught up in the stream of something. There's this tide that is carrying them away. Their, their devotion has changed. Their, what's big to them has changed. What matters has changed. Their allegiances have changed. They, their, their, their view of money and their possessions has changed. What's happening here is, is they're awestruck. And you see that so clearly in verse 31. I think verse 31 is the pivotal verse in this text. Because as they're in conflict with the Sanhedrin, Peter speaks on behalf of the apostles. And, and basically what he's saying is, guys, here's the problem. You, you just don't know who Jesus is. Like... Like, we know him, we've seen him, we've walked with him, but Sanhedrin, like, you just don't get Jesus. So one more time, can I explain who he is? Verse 31, God exalted him at God's right hand and appointed him as two really important words, leader and savior. That's a gospel proclamation. It's who God is and what he has done through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and the first word is, he is now the leader. In, in the Greek, it's a really important word. And uh, your, some of your translations may say, he's the, the beginning. Because that's in the Greek, that's what the word is, beginning. For example, like in, in Revelation 21 and 22, you've probably heard this phrase where Jesus at the end of all time says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the... That's the word. And it's not beginning just like he was the first one around. It, he was the first one around. But be, the, the, the word beginning in the Greek has the idea of authority. Since he's first, he's in charge. 
He's the one that you have to respond to. Since he's the beginning, he's the initiator of every single thing that happens on earth. Everything that's happening in your life, where you are right now, it's he's the beginning, he's the initiator, he's the leader. And you'll never do life well if you miss who Jesus is. That's what Peter's trying to explain to them. Guys, like we're in conflict here. Our worldviews are colliding because you don't get Jesus. You're not the leader. He is. You don't have the power. He does. And that's settled in our soul. Leader is a great word, but the other word is beautiful as well, right? Savior. When you need rescue, when you can't understand, when you can't, like, make it, he's not just the leader to command you, he's the Savior to rescue you. That's gospel teaching there, friends. And the apostles got that. And they're functioning out of the reality of they know who their leader is. And they know who their Savior is. And so the call to action is, well, you're going to have to repent. This leader and Savior has brought repentance to Israel. Do you all remember what repentance is? The easiest way to illustrate repentance, and I'm sure that Aaron's done this a million times, is repentance is you were walking down one path, and first of all, you came to new information, which impacted your soul, where you kind of had an aha experience. You go, wow, I never knew that. Like, what am I doing going in that direction? And repentance then is turning around and going in a new way based on the information that you have. Do you see what they're saying to the Sanhedrin? He's the leader. He's the Savior. He calls you to repent. In fact, instead of opposing us, you're supposed to join us. Wow, this guy's got boldness. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. The heart of the Savior is open to you, even if you've been mistaken for a long time. That's what, that's what Peter proclaims. It's a story, friends, about a picture of Jesus that fills their hearts with awe. And when your heart is filled with awe about who Jesus is, only one thing will be important to you. It will be that you represent Jesus well. Because your heart is filled with awe for him, your big desire is that others would see his awesomeness through you. That's why in verse 29, Peter said, well, judge for yourself. Do you think we should obey you or do you think we should obey God? Like, we can't do anything other than represent him well. What's changed is that what's big to these apostles is now different than everybody around them. And that's where the collision happens. So filled with awe, the big desire is that we would represent Jesus well with our words. And you see that in the text. Like we're not going to stop proclaiming Jesus, they say. Like our words must represent him well. For us to remain silent and to not speak would not represent the leader and the Savior. So we are, we're going to defy you, Sanhedrin, and we're going to continue to proclaim the word of Jesus. So filled with awe, they would represent him with their words. But also, filled with awe, they would represent him without words. And you know, of the two, I think the more important is that they represented him well without words. 
Don't get me wrong. The words are absolutely necessary. The gospel isn't just demonstrated. The gospel must be proclaimed. It's got to come out of our mouth. But the, the truth is, is the credibility of what comes out of our mouth often is, is enhanced or distracted by our demeanor. Now, when you read this story, do you, do you, do you see how they proclaim, like without words? It's, it's in their non-anxious presence. It seems like they're not rattled at all. They have this almost obnoxious confidence about them. Like basically Sanhedrin, there's not really much you can do to us. Like we're really just not going to obey you. You can just hear the Sanhedrin say, you don't understand our power structure. You don't understand how long we have worked to attain this level of power and authority in our culture. They, yeah, we don't really care. I mean, that was their demeanor. Could you imagine if they had said, choose like you decide should we obey god or you could you imagine if they would say like please 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 i, I we, we don't have any option there's nothing else that we can do like we're kind of in this hard place like oh like could you imagine if anxiety was the way that they proclaimed that the confidence the assurance the settledness that jesus is the leader came out in in the way they spoke not just in what they spoke does that make sense with a, with a desire to represent him well, we represent him with our words and we represent him without our words. I'm going to tell you a story, and um, I hesitate to tell the story because it's a personal story, and, and I don't want to give you the impression that this is my everyday life, okay? This is a unique season. It's a snapshot of my life. But the truth is it's a beautiful story. So about 2008, several years ago, my wife and I, we were pastoring in, in New Jersey, and there were some changes in the church, and we had to find our own place to live. We lived in a, a church-owned home, and we had to find our own home. So we had the option of living wherever we wanted to live in Vineland, and um, we said, we want to live in a place where our worlds will collide. We want to purposefully move onto a street where the people on those street on that street are very different than us and we want to do that on purpose i think we did a pretty good job because two doors down was a drug prostitute house that's not really like what we're like so it was really different to move into into that street um i remember we moved in in like may and uh, so by the time like it was coming into the holidays november or so we were we were uh, getting settled, and we wanted to start to really see what kind of impact we could have on our community, and we decided what better way to have an impact on our community than to give out <clears throat> banana bread to all of our neighbors. So, um, so it was my job to take banana bread to the drug prostitute house. What I forgot when I kind of organized my schedule that week was that there was a time change, and so when I knocked on their door to deliver banana bread, it was already dark. It was like probably 5.30, and it was already dark. And so here I am, this white guy, pretty obviously white, kind of big, knocking on their door at night. Doesn't look like I'm coming to buy either drugs or to seek what else they sell in that house. They probably thought I was a cop, right? So I'm knocking on the door, and nobody answers. And if you, if you got to know me, like, I'm not going to give up. So I just, and I have to go back to my wife. Like, she's the driving force behind all these things. I, I can't say I, I couldn't deliver the banana bread like you made it. So I'm, I keep on knocking on the door, and, 
and no, nobody comes. I, I mean, now I'm pounding on the door, and I'm sure I'm reinforcing for them, like, who I am and what I'm doing. And finally, somebody comes to the door and kind of yells at and says, what do you want? <laughs> My answer was, I'm your neighbor. I've got banana bread for you. Like, that didn't, that didn't win our neighborhood real well. We had other neighbors that when we first met them, like it was right away. They would say, so you're a pastor, right? And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. And uh, they say, all right, so what we want you to know is you're kind of welcome on our street, but I need you to know we will never come to your church. So just get that in your head. We will never, ever come to your church. And they would repeat that like every conversation. Yeah, you're a nice guy, Nate, but we'll never. I said, like, I'm not trying to get you to come to my church. Like, hey, so that was our neighbor. And then there was Crazy Roger. He was our, literally, it was us, then Crazy Roger, and then it was the drug prostitute house. And Crazy Roger lived there. And he, I, I call him Crazy Roger. He was just crazy. I mean, <laughs> there's no other way really to describe him. So he had like a room in, in his house. So our bedroom was here, our bathroom there. And then we looked out our bathroom window. It was that room. And it was his demon room. It was all dark, and he would do seances there, and it was all, like, occult stuff. And he would dress, he would paint his fingernails in all black, and he would put these demon figures all over his car. He was also, this is not uh, any kind of racial statement, but he was also Jewish. He grew up Jewish in Philadelphia, and so, I mean, talk about a Jewish demon guy next to a pastor. I mean, our worlds were colliding from 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 day one and so you know we were trying to reach out to our neighbors and we had a small group that would do you know activity on our street and nothing really was happening much until one day roger called me and um he actually didn't call me i just saw him outside and he said nate diane has cancer diane was his wife she's a sweetheart married to this crazy guy <laughs> diane has bone cancer and Roger said, you know the stuff that your, your small group has done on our street? Because we had, like, replaced roofs. We had cleaned out, you know, junky yards. We had, you know, just tried to do a little new creation work, like God's re restoring all things. Can we have a little picture of that on our street? So our small group did, had helped us. So Roger had seen that, and uh, he said, do you, think, do you guys think that you could put in a ramp for me? Because she can't get down the stairs with her bone cancer. She can't, she can't take steps. So we tried to, and we looked into it, but with the city and everything, it was just impossible to get in a ramp. So I said, Roger, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Let's do this. Every time that you need Diane to leave the house, call me and I'll be there. I'll rearrange my schedule, and every time you need to bring her back home, call me and I'll be there. I'll, I'll, if I'm, no matter what I'm doing, I'll drop it and you give me time and I'll be there. So it was my job to stand down the stairs. Was, there's only like three, four stairs. Roger and me on top, try to, to hold her and it was my job to, to pick up her, her ankles and lift her leg and then put it on the next step. And, and as her cancer got worse and worse, her legs were became deformed and often I was it was on, my hands were on encrusted poop as I'm helping her and keeping her from falling. Colossians 1 says, and I didn't say this in the first sermon, I probably shouldn't take the time to say it now, but Paul, 
Paul says in, in Colossians 1, he says, and I fill up what's lacking in regard to the suffering of Christ. What, what does he mean by that? There's nothing lacking in regard to the suffering of Christ in terms of provision. Jesus absolutely provided a full atonement for all who would come to him. So why would Paul say, I fill up what's lacking? Though there's nothing lacking in provision, there's something lacking in proclamation. And the best proclaimers of the gospel demonstrate something of the gospel through sacrificial service. In a sense, it didn't surprise me that when Diane got sicker and she was homebound and she couldn't go to treatment anymore and they had to have a hospital bed in her room, it didn't surprise me that Roger said, Nate, can you come over and help because Diane needs to be cleaned or we need to adjust Diane because she's falling down too much in the bed. We need to adjust her up. So I would go over pretty frequently and, and just sit with them. And uh, Diane loved me. Um, I, you, you know when someone loves you because our eyes would lock and she was in pain, but our eyes would lock and I would tell her with words about Jesus. She had a Catholic background and I think the pieces were coming together for her and sometimes she would just have tears and Roger would be over in the corner and he would watch me and Diane talk and he knew she loved me and I knew she loved me and I, and I loved her. And it wasn't long until I remember saying, Diane, do you want to receive Jesus as your Savior? And, and with tears, she, she did. And D Roger watched as I prayed over Diane. And it wasn't long until Diane was in residential hospice and then she, she went to be with Jesus. Afterwards, we, uh, Sharon and I would go over to spend some time with Roger. He was crazy, so I usually wouldn't let my wife spend too much time with him alone. But I would hang out with Roger and and it was just a matter of weeks where Roger said, um, Nate, I want to ask you to do something for me. He'd asked me to, to do a number of things, like to go to the graveside and stuff like that. He says, I have one more thing I want to ask you to do for me. And I said, what? He said, I want you to do to me what you did to Diane. Like that, he's pointing. Do, you, you, I want you to do to me what you did to Diane. I said, what are you talking about? Like, no, I want you to do to me what you did to Diane. Do that to me. I said, Roger, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Do to me what you did to Diane. And I said, do you mean, do you want to hear about Jesus? Do you, do you want to, like, pray and, and, like, unpack the burden of your soul, of, of the sin that you've carried? He said, that's what I want. I want you to do that with me. And Roger came to know Jesus. And he cleaned out that demon room. <laughs> he came to church with me. I mean, it was like, it was nuts. Recently, we were back in Vineland, and so we tried to drive down our street, and <laughs> my wife loves the street. My wife was really the impetus for all that happened on our street. I mean, we had people on our street get baptized. Those same people that said they would never come to church, they came to church. I mean, it was, it was nuts what God would do on a street. Um, I'm so glad we chose to live there. So recently, we were back in when we go visit our sons that live in the next town over, we, we often try to just go down Fenimore Street. And I saw Roger outside, and I said, I got I to gotta pull over. So I, I pulled over, and I said, Roger! They're crazy guys. And so I got closer and closer until he recognized me. He said, no, Nate, 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 you've got to come into my house. So I went into his house, and there was a peaceful sense in his house, and we had a conversation, but I, I really did have to go. And I said, Roger, I, I'm sorry, I have to leave. He said, no, no, you can't go. 
I said, no, Roger, no, seriously. I, I can't. No, you can't go. He's like 80 years old now. You can't go. I said, Roger, I'll come back. He said, will you promise me? Will you promise me? Now, now tell me, what impacted Roger? Was it our desire out of awe for Jesus because we loved Jesus and we wanted to represent him well? Was it that we represented him well with our words or was it we represented him well without our words? And I think the greater impact in Acts chapter 5 is that they represented Jesus well without their words. And the, the key to the story is all about awe, being enamored by Jesus, being swept away with the leader and the Savior, something about him that captivates our hearts. And, and I would ask you, how are you doing at cultivating your awe? Any of you ever heard of Blaise Pascal? If any of you are mathematicians, I know you know who Blaise Pascal is. Do you know to cultivate <coughs> his sense of awe, he sewed into the lining of the coat that he wore every day. It was hidden inside the lapel, the back of the lapel. No one knew it was there until after he was gone, but he sewed into the lining of his lapel the following. I'll read, I'll read for you what was, what was there. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November. From about half past 10 at night, until about half past midnight. One word. Fire. And then in an attempt to try to explain what the fire was for two hours, he wrote the following. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Do you think there was a bit of awe? He's a mathematician. A, a guy that's all about logic. It was the same Pascal who said, um, the heart has its reasons which reason does not know. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that, that um, we're not supposed to use our head. and I'm not, I'm not saying that that we're not supposed to be reasonable. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you that what drives the book of Acts from chapter 3 until chapter 8 is fire. It's fire. It's life-altering. It changes everything. All of our priorities get disrupted. It's fire. And my question is, when's the last time you experienced fire? What are you doing in your life to posture yourself before the grandeur of Jesus who in Revelation, when John, who wrote the book of Revelation, so I'm saying, his eyes blaze with fire. 
I'm not telling you that you should only speak for Jesus when you feel like speaking for Jesus. I'm not saying that you reserve your Christian life until you can say, well, I'm automatically in every moment inspired by fire. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, can you get it on your radar screen that fire is what you desire, that fire is what you pursue, that fire would be life-altering? Can it just get into your thought that fire is an essential needed, is an essential needed element of what it means to be an, a, a follower of Jesus in the apostolic tradition? In fact, I think that when we begin to understand a little bit about awe, even when we don't feel it, we're inspired by it, by the lack of it. It's called an obedience with repentance. Oh, Jesus, I know that I don't love you enough. I know that I'm not captivated by you enough, but I'm still going to obey you in hopes that somehow, even through this action, you'll captivate me more. This is not a how-to message. This is kind of a high-elevation message. It's, I'm convinced it's the driving factor in the story that we've looked at, but I've got to leave you with something related to what am I supposed to do with this? So I'll give you three things. That's what pastors do, right? Read God's word. Looking for fire. Looking for awe. Read God's way asking the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to you in a way that you would say, wow, if that's true, um, it changes the way I view him. So God's word. Second, be honest. I'm just going to guess that there's more than one person in this room that what I'm talking about is really foreign. Really like, this guy's weird. Fire? Like, what's that? You maybe have never in your whole Christian experience had an encounter with the person of Jesus that it was life-altering like what I've talked about. Your, your encounter maybe was more rational. It was more even like transactional like I don't want to go to hell Jesus died for my sins okay I can accept that and I affirm that and I trust him as my savior and let's, 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 let's go on not that any of that is wrong but that's not it heaven is not made up of people there just because they didn't want to go to hell heaven is made up of people who are captivated by what's central in heaven <laughs> is Jesus. So just be honest. Yeah, I don't really get that. Um, maybe I'd kind of like it. Maybe I'd like to think about it a little bit more, but I I'm kind of lacking it. So that'd be the second is be honest. And the third is do what the apostles did. Get on mission. Get on mission. Someone this week <clears throat> told me that Happy Valley... It's characterized by seeking comfort. I don't know if that's true. I'm not from Happy Valley. But if you're like into your own comfort and you just don't like to have your boat rocked at all, you may never experience awe. You, you might need to put yourself into a situation similar to like when Sharon and I decided on purpose we wanted to be in a place where there was a, a collision of worldviews on purpose. And that we were going to go into that place with the desire to represent Jesus well with and without words, principally without words. 
but with words as well. You, 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 you may actually want to find somebody that you would say, you know, I, I totally disagree with that person. <clears throat> what they represent, you, you maybe even hate it. Like you are just completely against it. And on purpose, you're going to engage them. On purpose, you're going to try to enter into their world. Live your life on mission. And I can almost guarantee you, on mission, you will experience the awe of who Jesus is and the kind of stuff that he does. Let me pray. Jesus, <clears throat> this Sunday is an interesting Sunday because it is kind of the launch of, of much that's going to be happening in this community. And uh, we just know that there's going to be worlds colliding. And I'm asking that in your mercy, you would give an Acts chapter 5 perspective to people that are stepping into those situations, even where there is currently a great sense of anxiety over it or intimidation over it. We're asking Jesus that you would allow these brothers and sisters to step into those situations saying, Oh, Jesus, reveal to me your awe. Let them encounter you in Scripture. Let them encounter you in honest community. Let them encounter you on mission. Win our hearts again. In Jesus' name.